Hey guys, welcome to the Money Moves Podcast brought to you by Gen Z for Financial Literacy and Hack Plus. I'm Matthew Shadid. I'm Stephen Lin. And today's guest is Tim Renzetta. For the past decade, he's been running NextGen Personal Finance, an organization he co-founded to help advocate for youth personal finance rates and help ensure that today's high school students will be able to take a personal finance course by the time they graduate high school. We're so glad Tim decided to join us on today's episode, and we can't wait for you all to hear our conversation. All right. Well, first of all, thank you, Matthew and Stephen. It's always inspiring for me to hear from the next generation and really your passion and commitment to the field and your goals kind of align so well with our organization. Just real quickly about me. I know you guys are in Somerset, New Jersey. I grew up uh, about 45 minutes north in Demarest, New Jersey, one of six kids. Uh, I'm one of the fortunate few in that I learned a lot of great uh, financial lessons from my parents, both in the, their behaviors, but also in things that they taught us. And so, you know, my path to uh, financial education and to being one of the co-founders of NextGen Personal Finance, I think, number one, was recognizing my good fortune. Number two, I think, was volunteering to teach a class at a high school in East Palo Alto, California called Eastside College Prep. And that was a little over a decade ago. Uh, I volunteered to do this, not really know what I was knowing what I was signing up for, but quickly in a month I had to come up with 25 hours of curriculum that I'd be teaching to three sections of high schoolers for kind of a summer school course. And it was that experience at both seeing the eagerness with which all students wanted to learn these concepts. I mean, the fact that it's about money means you're naturally going to catch their attention. And then I think what I didn't count on was their parents starting to reach out and the ripple effect. You know, and so parents were reaching about reaching out about budgeting. Uh, I had one conversation with a parent, helped them set up a financial account, uh, an investing account, and then opened uh, went with them to a broker to set up an IRA. And I just realized the power of, you know, when you're teaching a classroom of students, um, you also have the opportunity to teach their parents too. And so that was really powerful. And so several years. Uh, I taught that class for eight summers. Um, several years after that was kind of a decision I made where I really felt the impulse to start something to really help solve the crisis in this country with just too many folks not having uh, the ability to learn in a safe space like school and having to learn through the School of Hard Knocks. I mean, that's infinitely inspiring. And I think Something that caught my attention that you said at the very beginning was that you're one of six kids. And I know that'll teach you something. I'm sure like a lot of what you've done has probably, what does that tell you and, and where have you gone from from there? Yeah, so I was the fifth. So I had, I had some siblings to oh. learn from. Um, but it was apparent at a, at a young age, you know, that if I wanted to go to college, I was going to have to pay for it because um, we were kind of firmly in the middle class. And so we, uh, my dad earned too much to, for us to get financial aid, but didn't earn enough for us to pay our way through school. And so it was very, I was, you know, seven year old, I had a dog walking job, 12 years old, I had a newspaper route. Uh, snowstorms in New Jersey were an entrepreneurial opportunity because I'd go grab my okay. shovel and go shovel driveways. Um, by the way, the ideal amount of snow is about seven to eight inches because people don't pay you when that two and a half foot yeah. snowstorm comes along, they're not paying you that much more. Um, you know, and then was a golf caddy for eight years um, at a country club called Alpine Country Club and just learned, you know, that was a great lesson 
in both customer service as well as a lot of the golfers were worked on Wall Street. And so I was one of those curious kids who, you know, would not only help them read putts, but also ask them a lot of questions about what they did for a living. And so uh, that was really, really valuable experience. So, you know, I can't thank my parents enough. And frankly, this is a little bit of a, a give back for me um, for the things that they, they're no longer with us. And so, you know, I feel to some extent I'm channeling all of the things uh, that I learned from them. And again, a lot said, but also a lot unsaid just in terms of both the way they manage the family finances, but also, you know, I think my mom, um, for her raising six kids wasn't enough. You know, she was the the volunteer, you know, whether it was, I think she did 30, 40 years of storytelling, you know, story hours at public libraries. She would volunteer at the soup kitchen. She was the Girl Scout troop leader. Like there was no opportunity. She just sent a really important message to me that, you know, we're part of a larger community and we ha really have to think about how do we, how can we serve not only our family, but how we can serve others. Exactly. And in your previous answer, you talked, a, you, you like touched on the fact that a lot of schools around the U.S. currently really aren't teaching kids about personal finance. And you kind of realize that through your own job teaching the summer course. And me and Matthew, we, our high school was fortunate enough to offer a personal finance class that we both took our freshman year. And we both realized after taking this class, hey, this is a super important life changing information about investing, budgeting, saving. We went through simulations and took classes and took lessons that taught us these really important personal finance tips and personal finance lessons that we knew would carry us down the road. But we realized that, hey, very few or not a majority of U.S. states actually offer and require personal finance classes for high school students to graduate. So maybe you could touch on what your current organization is doing to combat that and how you guys are advocating to ensure that students are able to learn personal finance through their school system. Yeah, so we really started, you know, when Jessica and I, the other co-founder, um, started NextGen Personal Finance, I think we realized there was a, a yawning gap in what was being taught in school. So we wanted to create an organization to really help that. And so kind of as I think about how the organization evolved, we started with curriculum. You know, we wanted it to be comprehensive. We wanted it to really be the one stop, the one place teachers could go to to have, you know, whether they had a curriculum already and wanted to supplement it, or if they were looking for kind of a standalone uh, one semester course or a full year course, or maybe they only had nine weeks, uh, or maybe they taught middle school, or maybe they, they teach math and we have a financial algebra course. So we wanted to kind of uh, be that one place teachers could go to. And then the second thing we quickly realized is uh, this isn't being taught in teacher prep programs. And so one of the things that's held back this movement is who's going to teach the course. And so we realized we needed to, in effect, become the on-the-job trainers um, to assist educators as they, because the more confident they felt teaching the course, obviously, the more effective they would be. And so um, while we serve about 80,000 teachers with curriculum on the professional development side, over the last three years, we've served over 15,000 teachers who've spent over 25 hours with us. And we realized in that process that teachers also could be incredible advocates. And so traditionally we had focused on grassroots, you know, really identifying those teachers, those teachers coming to us saying, hey, I wanna do more in my school community because what we found was there are states that require it, but then there's also power at the local level, whether it's a teacher, a student or a group of students or a parent really advocating to the board, the school board saying, 
hey, this is an important subject that we ought to make sure every high school student when they cross the graduation stage has taken this course and picked up the skills and behaviors they need to, to thrive. And so uh, we had great success with that. We had a grant program, I think over 180, I think over 180 schools received grants because somebody at the local level advocated for it. Um, I'm an incredibly impatient person, so I'm always looking for solutions to how do we get there faster. So when we started in 2014, just to kind of level set a little bit, I, I think about one in 10 students attended a high school that required a semester-long personal finance course. So today, fast forward to 2023, just in the last two years, we've seen the number of states go from eight to 22, and that will soon be 23. We're recording this in early July. By the end of July, Oregon will be the 23rd state because there's a bill on the governor's desk. And we've seen the percentage of students, again, from when we started, one in 10, to we're about to cross that tipping point of getting close to 50% of high school students. So the lesson we learned, if you want change to happen at kind of at, at a faster rate and create more systemic change, state legislatures and state boards of ed can be very effective at helping achieve that. And so we created a separate organization, an affiliated organization, specifically to advocate at the state level. And we've seen, you know, six states last year, five soon to be six this year. Um, move forward. So I'm really excited about the momentum and the shift. I think people are recognizing um, just the the yawning need out there, but I think we're also we're identifying the fact that there are teachers available, not only available, teachers confident and highly qualified to teach the subject. Yeah, and I think that shows in how much success you guys have seen. Like it is just mind-boggling how much success you guys have seen at the state legislator level and i'm really impressed by it and it's really inspiring for us because at first we knew that the state legislator controls education and those types of decisions in terms of state level mandates but the way you guys have been able to just probe the state legislator into allowing you guys to, to have this mandate because it is such an obvious decision and something that you wouldn't expect an organization to have to like go explain to like, obviously kids need to learn about money, but it seems to be something that a lot of people need explaining to and, and it needs to be a part of schools. So I talk more about the, um, the separate organization. I didn't know about that. You guys have like a separate organization that focuses on the state legislature. Yeah. So it's called, uh, it's called NGPF mission 2030 fund. Mm. And, you know, there's a rule that nonprofits or, uh, in the case of, NGPF, we're an operating foundation, you know, that funds cannot be used to lobby or advocate for specific legislation. And so that was the purpose of setting that up. I also, I just want to highlight, I think the success we've had, it takes a community. So I can tell you, you know, the, the real centerpiece for this work is the hearings. So usually the bill gets introduced by a representative or a senator or a member of the assembly. And then in the first hearing, it's typically heard in an education committee. Uh, and I will tell you the most effective advocates for this are teachers and students. Um, it's one thing to hear from a national organization like Next Gen Personal Finance and the trends and what we're seeing and why we're seeing it. But it's quite another thing for a student to say, let me tell you about how my life has changed as a result of this class. Or a teacher 
uh, uh, Joel Chrysler in Wisconsin, his, his testimony stands out, how a student stayed behind in his class after everybody, after the bell had rung and said, you know, you're helping me change my family tree uh, because I'm learning lessons that are going to help lift me out of a, a situation of poverty um, because of the tools that you've given me. So I think I, I do want to highlight like our work, you know, I think it's has played a role, but I can also tell you, you know, it's building a coalition, you know, so not only students and parents, but also uh, organizations, it's talking to school groups, it's, you know, like school board associations and teachers unions and really sitting down with them because there's a lot of stakeholders involved in this process. And, you know, we're not just about getting laws passed. We're about ensuring that the implementation of those laws is successful. And so usually what's built into the legislation is a three, four or five year implementation period. And then our goal is really to partner with uh, whether it's the state department of education or local school boards, uh, local districts, large districts to say, okay, now that this is coming, how do we ensure that every student has a quality experience in this class too? And I think a big part of that, like you touched on before, was ensuring that you educated teachers who are excited to teach personal finance, who wanted to get the information to the kids, making sure that they were equipped with the professional development tools in order to teach these personal finance courses. So when NextGen Personal Finance is making these professional development curricula, what topics do you choose to include? Tell, tell us more about how you craft this professional development curricula and what personal finance topics you guys choose to include when teaching teachers how to teach students. Yeah, sure. Great question. So I think number one, the interesting thing, I think one of the reasons teachers are so eager uh, to participate in professional development is, and there's research behind this, if you teach personal finance over a period of time, you tend to improve your own financial situation, um, whether it's getting additional tips uh, from these workshops or, which I think is often the case um, where this is a, like, let's step back for a minute. This is a challenging course to teach. I mean, because it is so comprehensive, number one, and number two, it's constantly changing. And so I think we see, you know, we always we always tell folks when they're in our uh, professional development sessions, you know, you found your community of finance nerds, because I can tell you the dedication that teachers have. They're often doing this professional development, particularly on the East Coast. You know, many of our sessions end at 9 p.m. Um, and so they've taught you know, they've shown up early for school. They've taught a full day of classes. They've probably done some stuff after school, whether it's, you know, coaching a sports team or running the yearbook. And then they're coming home, having dinner and immediately jumping on for, you know, our certification courses, which are two hours wow. in duration. So, you know, that commitment, I think, really, really inspires the team. Uh, in terms of what we're teaching them, it's really kind of mimicking um, our our semester course, you know, so we hit all of the major content areas from, you know, behavioral economics to budgeting, to investing, to consumer skills, um, you know, pretty much credit scores, how to manage credit, credit scores, you know, all of those, those basic categories. And, you know, we deliver professional development three different ways. So on the light, lighter touch end, we have on-demand modules where a teacher can spend an hour and get up to speed quickly on a current topic like buy now, pay later, or crypto, or NFTs, or just recent trends in, in personal finance, things like chat GPT. Uh, second way they can engage with us is through every week we do three to five live events. So this might be for a beginner just getting started. How do I 
how do I teach using NGPF curriculum? What's the method uh, through which we teach? Or And in these sessions, they have opportunities to collaborate with other educators. And then on the far extreme are 10-hour certification courses. So this is a, a deep dive where we're doing nine hours of live instruction, and then a teacher's passing a 30-question multiple-choice test. And if teachers complete six of those certification courses, and I think we have 11 or 12 right now, if they complete six of them, we identify them as distinguished distinguished educators. The way we teach, I kind of talk about the topics. I think the way we teach is a little bit different that this is not sit and get. This is not a one-hour PowerPoint where I'm just going to bombard you with information. I think adults are no different from students. They want to be active learners. So we use a platform called Nearpod, which enables us to engage teachers in different ways. So they can watch a video, answer some quiz questions. They We can put a prompt out there and they can put, put their ideas up on a collaboration board and I can resort the list based on likes and then start a discussion around, for example, what are different ways you teach compounding to your students? Um, so basically there's usually a typical two hour uh, certification course that we do with teachers might engage them 10, 12 different ways. Um, so I think that's the key. And I think that's why uh, professional development has been popular is we figured out a method to really engage engage people using multiple uh, learning styles. Yeah, and I think what that speaks to is how difficult it is to teach this course correctly. It is really easy just to spew out a bunch of fast facts or or say like the FDIC insures you up to $250,000 um, or something like that. But it's really difficult to give a comprehensive, in-depth, real-world personal finance course. And I think a lot of times students might get it, might get the personal finance course, but they might not get one that really prepares them for the real world. What do you think the most important adjustments in curricula there are recently or can potentially be implemented that actually make those changes and make it go from just spewing of information to like actual actionable things. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think one of the reasons we really push for a semester long course is uh, I think if you're constrained, like oftentimes this course, uh, the concepts will get embedded in another course. So maybe it's two weeks at the end of an economics course. Um, And then the idea of just spewing concepts is like, oh, got to hit all the standards. So the easiest way for me to do that is to put it up on the board and just talk through it instead of so I think the key, and I'll, I'll highlight kind of what we have found on our platform, on our curriculum, like what's most popular. Number one is games, um, you know, because many students don't have experience or they there's a huge emotional and psychological component, which I can talk about or I can try and create a game and simulation that make you feel that way. And so, for example, our stacks game is this frenetic investing game where the lesson is like, hey, Sometimes the simplest strategy is the best strategy. So you may have felt great day trading uh, op, day trading stocks or trying to bet on commodity markets, but there's another way, which is called dollar cost averaging in the index funds. So games are kind of games and simulations. Let's let students experience the emotions and psychology behind products. Um, it could be a loan product too. We have a game called Shady Sam where they they play the role of loan shark and, and learn about the tricks that lenders use to get you to pay more, you know, whether it's stretching a loan, you know, reducing your monthly loan payment, but stretching it out over longer term. So I think games is number one. I think number two 
is current events. Uh, when kids are talking about crypto, like you, you have to have an updated curriculum to be able to teach them. So we have a product called FinCap Friday. Every, every week, Yanelli Espinal from our team creates a two and a half minute video with quiz questions. Kids are curious. Let's feed that curiosity by asking them questions. And that's another product called Questions of the Day. So we think starting every class session with a do now or a question just to get people curious, but also getting a classroom discussion going. And I think that's another important aspect of this. This isn't a subject that should be spoken to at students, but instead have rich discussions because there are students in a classroom, a typical classroom, who are going to say, yeah, I do have a part-time job. And let me tell you what I learned about how to read a pay stub. Or there'll be students who talk about, yeah, I have overdrawn my account. And that $5 coffee I had at Starbucks cost me $40. Like those lessons, those conversations, I think are really important, not always coming from the teacher, but coming from peers. And the third thing I, I would say is just is projects and activities, um, group projects. Like we've got a great activity called budgeting with roommates. You put three or four students together. They have a, a, a card which basically tells them, okay, here's the scenario. Here's kind of your profile. Now you've got to negotiate with three or four other students to figure out who's going to get the largest room in this four bedroom apartment. Those sorts of uh, hands-on projects uh, working working with others. So I think those are some of the the attributes. It's got to be current. It's got to be. We also we also allow teachers to customize the curriculum, and so teachers know their students best. Let's put that power into their hands. So because we do everything in Google Docs, they can file, make a copy, add questions, delete questions, change terminology. Um, so I think those are some of the key key elements to to engage students because. You know, and then I think it's just the energy and passion that teachers bring to, mm -hmm. I think that students really respond to. If you really care about the subject and it shows in your teaching, it shows what you're bringing to students. I think, I mean, you all know this as, as students, you know, it really does make yeah. a difference what teachers bring. Exactly. And then from our, me and Matthew's previous experience talking to teachers, a lot of the things they talk about are we really want to keep students engaged. We want to make sure they're not just learning these fast facts, but like you and Matthew both mentioned, we want to make sure they're engaged with the content. And actually, me and Matthew actually both previously ran our high school's business club. And during one of our business club meetings, we played next-gen personal finance crypto craze game, and it was a hit. <laughs> and it was great because we had just done a 20-minute lesson on cryptocurrency, talking about blockchain, talking about how people use it, the risks, the pros. And then we played Next Gen Personal Finance Crypto Craze game, and it was a hit because we saw kids, oh my God, you forgot your crypto account password. You lost all your cryptocurrency. You, you, you have no more access to it. I lost and my then password. We saw kids. Yeah. So, like, so like, yeah. So, like, Matthew was playing the game and he forgot the password. And, oh my God, that's a real thing that can happen if you buy cryptocurrency yeah. and you don't store your password. So, yeah. it was a great hands on learning experience for the kids. And I think those are the types of activities and games you want to present kids with to make learning personal finance engaging for them. Yeah, there's a there's a last thing I just want to highlight because our, our, I think our curriculum team is is so creative. Um, they created a series of activities we call move activities because the other thing is like I think students get tired after a while of sitting in the desk, right? So let's get them out of their, their seats. And so imagine a game where you're kind of in order to understand the, you know, the S&P 500 and its components, the companies that are part of this larger index, Imagine this game where you have kind of uh, these industry 
classifications and then you've got to match the companies to the industries and you're doing it out of your desk, posting it on the wall, people racing as quickly as possible. And then having somebody, you're having your teacher look at your list and say, oh, okay, these you know, five companies are off. See if you can figure out which ones to move around. And it's got a competitive element to it and it's active kinesthetic learning. And I think we probably have 15 or 20 of these move activities, which I think are just really creative ways to get students engaged. What about from, from the perspective of someone who went through those classes that weren't as engaging? And then now they're looking back and they're like, how can I learn and, and what can I do to stay on track and, and be able to educate myself? Where do you think is best for them to go? Yeah, it's a great question about, you know, and, and I think it starts with being curious. I think it starts with realizing you're never going to know everything. Um, and then it's figuring out, okay, what, what appeals to you? And, and I think the good news is it's good news and bad news, right? There's never been more higher volume of financial advice out there. And so I, you know, I think you want to go to trusted sources, which, you know, there are, you know, okay. So where, where do you go as a young person? I guess, you know, you want to keep up on business news, you know, probably wall street journal is a good place to start. You want, you want to look at podcasts. You know, I, I think it, it comes down to, per, you know, you got to listen to a lot of different people to figure out, okay, who, who really speaks to me and resonates with me. Um, in terms of understanding, but I think a basic book about investing. Um, and, you know, I, I like random walk down Wall Street because I think it highlights the challenge. It's an oldie, but a goodie, I guess. I think it's on its 14th edition, but it just highlights for folks. I think there's often, if you're not, if you're getting new to the game, you assume the experts know something. And I think, so, you know, the experts are trying to sell you something. They're also trying to convince you that you don't know enough. So that's why you need to hire them. And I think that's just a good bucket breaking down the facade of like, Hey, guess what? Most professional money managers don't beat the market. <laughs> and I think anything written by Jack Bogle uh, about mutual funds, about index funds are kind of a good place to start. Uh, the psychology piece of it, you know, I teach a course uh, to teachers called the psychology of money. And I, I think that's, and I did not realize that this would resonate with high school teachers, uh, high school students. But the number of teachers who've told me, I went out and bought a class set and used with my students and they love it because I think it's a it's a finance book without really being a finance book um, because they can they can be very dry. Uh, I've seen some great books written by students. Uh, Ella Gupta, I'm forgetting the title right now. She's a uh, high school student who's actually, I think, heading off to college. Uh, she wrote a book specifically for Gen Z, um, which I think is is quite good. So I'm happy to provide kind of a longer list to you, but that's just kind of a, a start. Exactly. And you talk about curiosity, like having a drive to want to learn more, to want to explore more beyond the scope of even a classroom setting. But for example, if a six-year-old kid was trying to learn about personal finance, telling them, okay, you know, if you invest this much every single year, by 65, you'll have XYZ amount of money. You know, 65 feels so far off for so many kids. So when you talk to a student, a high school, a middle schooler who isn't interested in learning about money, who isn't interested about perhaps furthering their personal finance knowledge, what do you tell them to get them motivated, to get them encouraged, to build that curiosity, to expand their personal finance knowledge? Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll just kind of talk about some tactics that I, I know teachers use on a regular. I think anytime you talk about becoming a millionaire, 
um, that can be pretty powerful. And so I hear yeah. a lot about I hear a lot about compound. If you ask most people, hey, how much money do you think you need to save or invest? I think there's a key distinction there. Too often people say, how much do you have to save versus how much you have to invest? Because savings accounts aren't going to get you there as nearly as fast. But just playing with compound interest calculators, um, I think you know when you when you talk about the fire movement, I think that captures a lot of people's curiosity. Um, and and I'm going to recognize that fire people who can, you know, financial independence, retire early, people who retire early, they are outliers. Let's, let's, you know, identify that. But I think this concept of financial independence can be, oh, you mean I can have more control over my time? You know, I can choose careers that may not be the most lucrative or a second career that may not be the most lucrative. I think that can capture uh, a lot of, a lot of people's attention too. I think it's, I think it's just asking them too, like, what, what do you want to get out of life and recognizing that personal finances have a key role to play in that. So finance as a word can be a loaded term to a lot of folks. That's not my thing. That's something for somebody else to handle. That's intimidating. We don't talk about it at home. And so I think sometimes, you know, really understanding somebody's, you know, what is, what is somebody's life goals? And then thinking about how personal finance can get them, can get them there. And, and also, I, I think one of the things I always enjoy doing, which helps bring out uh, a deeper empathy and deeper understanding for your, for students would be to put up a, you know, before we start the investing unit, I might just put up a slide that says investing is okay. Now, without any thought, write down the first word that comes to mind. And you very quickly have the opportunity. It's a ripoff. Okay, let's let's explore that a little bit. Like, tell me a little bit about your experience or kind of where that thought process is is coming from. Or it's frightening. Or it's only for rich, only for rich people. Or you want to kind of uncover people's attitudes so you have a chance to kind of talk through it. Um, and then the last thing I will say is, you know, there can be an element of peer. Um, you know, peers motivating other peers. So I can talk about investing and somebody might say, well, that's not for me, or I'm too young for that, or why would I ever want to save for retirement? And there might be a student in the class who has an IRA, who has a Roth IRA. And so it's not me, it's kind of saying, okay, well, let's let's go with Jane over here. Jane, tell us a little bit about what is a Roth IRA? Why did you set it up? What are your hopes? And uh, like, I think using peers, because there will be, in, in many classrooms, there will be a student who's benefited from a parent or a mentor or, or caretaker who's kind of instructed them on this that are taking these steps. And then I think when you see other near pe peers or near peers doing it, it suddenly becomes less of mystique or less it's for somebody else to do. And you're saying, wow, if he, if he or she can do it, so can I. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think the whole idea of that type of quality and, and we've talked a lot about quality and what makes like a strong personal finance class but i think at the beginning we really focused on mandates and getting state legislators to do things how do you think your organization has been able to focus on or, or is the entirety of quality separate from the mandates or is are they intertwined or do, do you try to get the quality through the mandates too yeah, I think a mandate without quality is is useless. Because um, yeah, I I don't want students. Boy, that would be 
you know, I don't want students sitting through classes that exactly, aren't yeah. engaging and, and really teaching them the, the right thing. So I think that's, that is, I really see them as intertwined and really part of the, the conversation we have. Um, so one of the things about education in the U S is this idea of local control. Like the, there's a reason we have local school boards because they really know the community best at the local level. And so I think every attempt is made with the legislation to, to really respect that. And so how does that take place? Well, number one, um, decisions should be made locally about what curriculum to use. Um, so while the state might set the standards, which are basically, here's what needs to be taught in the class, like let's put it on the teachers and the administrators and the school boards to decide what's what's best when it comes to the curriculum. I think number two is who's best set to teach the class. Like, so let's be flexible because personal finance tends to fit in a lot of different uh, categories when it comes to, to school. So it might be taught today by a social studies teacher who also teaches economics. It might be a CTE, a career and technical education. It might be a business teacher, it might be a math teacher. Like let's not arbitrarily say, oh, only this specific subject area or t subject area teacher should teach the course because it it's already being taught. You know, 70% of students attend a school that at least offers an elective in personal finance. We don't want to pull that away from an existing teacher who's really passionate and effective at, at teaching it. And then the third piece of quality is like where, where we don't want to add an additional requirement at the high school level. What we want to do is figure out where does this best fit within existing graduation requirements. We don't want to add time to the, to the school day. Instead, we want to say, where does it fit? And what you find in many states is uh, there's a large bucket of electives that students can get. And we love that amount of choice for students to really decide what they want to learn. So usually it means taking a half a credit, you know, a semester long out of a, an elective bucket, um, which seems to be the easiest path in other states we've seen. It come from a variety of choice you know, can count as either a half a credit of math or an elective. And so giving choice, uh, allowing uh, local decision makers to decide on those things, I think works best and helps ensure quality. Yeah, and I think a big part of what both our organizations are advocating for are standalone, at least semester long personal finance courses. And when we talk to stakeholders, some of them are confused, like, okay, well, my school offers a two week personal finance course, as for example, part of an AP econ class, or as part of an online aspect of a math class. So touch more on like, what does a standalone personal finance course mean? And why is it so important that it's semester long instead of two weeks or month long as part of a larger course? Yeah. So, I mean, we talked a little bit about this earlier. I think, you know, if, if it's a two week course, what are you going to, what are you going to teach? What are you going to leave out? I guess would be the, the biggest question. How can you realistically cover, you know, a 10 or 12 unit course, which should be a 10 or 12 unit course. I think the second thing is going to be, there's going to be an emphasis on uh, just giving you as much of those facts as possible. I think the, the reason a semester course, number one, the comprehensiveness of the topics, but number two, the teaching style, how it's best taught and doing group projects, having classroom discussions, allowing students, you know, time to, to really engage, um, playing simulations and games like they may not be the most efficient way to teach. Like I can go through a PowerPoint really quickly and say, I hit all these standards because I talked you through each of these things, 
but it's not going to be effective. It's not going to be anything that sticks. It's not going to be anything that makes you feel like, oh, I've got agency here because I actually know how to do research to find how to get the best interest rate on a CD because interest rates are a little bit higher now. Or I have agency because I know how to distill what's, or I know how to kind of go to TikTok and figure out what's good advice versus what's not. Um, so I think without the amount of time to really delve into this topic, I think you're shortchanging kids. Um, you're Because you're either going to have to cut the amount of content you're going to cover, or you're going to cover it in a way that doesn't stick. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think summing it up in a two-week fashion is... Honestly, you, you'd rather not do it at all. You're really just spewing facts and, and the, nothing's really sticking like you said. But yeah, I'll just add one other thing yeah. too, because I know in New Jersey, I had a friend who's, uh, whose daughter was, uh, was a high school student in New Jersey and she, she chose the online option. So I think kind of um, in some schools, they offer that. And that's what we did. I, I, yeah, and I, I also- both took the online, online summer class. Uh, for personal so, finance, thinking it would be like more standalone and focused, but I feel like it ended up being the opposite. Yeah. So I, you know, my personal, and I, you guys can attest to what that experience was like. It, it just didn't feel, it, it was leaving a couple pieces out of it, group projects for one, I think discussion in the classroom. And it's, it's hard to engage, you know, when your emphasis suddenly becomes, how can I get through this as quickly as possible? Yeah. Um, but it sounds like you guys got, got something out of it. So maybe, you know, maybe I need to update my, but I guess I've seen the richness of the course when taught by, you know, a qualified and passionate educator, which Especially I think is hard to replicate. With like more what you talked about with the kinetic um, nature of how you teach to teach personal finance. I think that's really cool. And I think that's, that's really what makes it stick uh, for me and like the classroom games and, and all that, that really makes it something that's quality and, and actually makes it effective. And yep. I really hope the future continues to hold those type of education, not even just in personal finance in general, but in terms of the future, where do you think that that personal finance and mandated personal finance courses um, have a place, especially in the next seven years, um, speaking to Mission 2030. Yeah, I was really excited to see that on your website, by the way, Mission 2030. Yeah, it seemed mm -hmm. like, uh, I think we came out with that about a, 10 years ago, or excuse me, we came out with that 2020 or 2021. And my thinking was, uh, when Kennedy said, we're going to go to the moon, I think it was eight years later, we walked on the moon. And there was a lot of stuff we hadn't figured out, like, that had not been figured out when he made that bold claim. And kind of, I think this is not rocket science, right? Like we have curriculum out there. We know how to train educators. And now we've seen how to implement kind of at a, at a statewide level as we are partnering with more and more of these states to kind of, to kind of assist. So, you know, I've never been more optimistic that the wave of momentum will continue because, you know, we talk a lot about, uh, FOMO, when it comes to behavioral uh, economics, you know, the fear of missing out. And I think as we see more and more states do this, especially states bordering each other, I think it, it just increases the pressure. Why are students in New Hampshire able to get a semester long personal finance while those in Massachusetts uh, are not? And so I think I also just think 
there's a, uh, this is a really, you know, in a very polarized politically country, uh, very, you know, a lot of polarization, very few issues that both parties can agree on. This is one, <laughs> you know, this is one where Ron DeSantis of Florida and Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan can both agree on, and there's not many of those yeah. issues. And, and we actually, uh, did some analysis. One member of my team, Christian Sherrill, did some analysis. He found when these bills get to the House or the Senate floor, the vote count is like 98%. 98% vote in favor of this. And so it's common sense. It's not costly. In fact, I would argue there's a huge economic benefit for states that implement this. I think a financially capable populace uh, means more tax dollars. It means you know, more money being invested, reducing the potential for pension issues. I think there's just so many economic benefits. Like often the focus is on how much is this going to cost us to implement? And I think what far outweighs that is the economic benefits that come from educating students at the high school level about personal finance. I think that's so crucial for people to understand because that's really the economic way of thinking, weighing how much will this help um, our country with having people be educated on financial topics, um, especially in the environment we're entering in, in the future, where it's crucial to be individually educated on personal finance. I think just to get a bit more personal to you and, and your experience in the space, um, you have quite a bit of time, a lot more than us in the space. You've learned a lot. What are some of the values and lessons that you've learned being in the personal finance uh, space, running the organization and being a part of all the things that, that you influence so much. Yeah. I'll start with the organization. I feel very privileged to have just an incredible team um, working towards this. And I guess what I've learned is just the power of having an organization that's, that's mission oriented. And so I, I really feel like our, um, the decision-making we make within the organization became a lot easier once we had aligned to that North star of mission 2030. And I think uh, my co-founder Jessica has been really good about, you know, focusing our efforts. And so before we make a big decision, I think we always put it through the lens of, okay, how is this going to get us to mission 2030? And so we've avoided going internationally. For example, we'll have people reach out to us saying, can you help us in, uh, another country. And yet, like, do I wish we could? Yes. Do we have limited resources? Yes. And you kind of have to, this need for focus. And so uh, just learned a ton about the importance of having that North Star and kind of, so everything we do is aligned to that. And I think every team member, uh, you know, has a personal story as to why they are invested in our organization and invested in the movement. So I think that's number one. I think number two is just the power of community. And I think the teachers that I have the opportunity to work with day in, day out, whether I'm, I'm teaching a course or whether they're helping us uh, on the advocacy front, I just realize how many, uh, how, number one, how hardworking they are. Number two, how much they care about their students. And number three is just the, the power of, the power that they have, whether they, they realize it or not, the power of their testimony to what they see in their classrooms, what they experience, what impact they have on students. And so 
that's just there. It's so uplifting to be around a group that really cares about this subject. Um, so I, I'd say that's the, and I think it's just the power also of setting ambitious goals. Um, again, when we set this goal two years ago, you know, I'm sure a lot of people were like, because what I got tired of was kind of everybody saying how important this was, but I felt like we had to put a stake in the ground to say, okay, this is so important that, you know, we are going to consider ourselves a success or not based on our ability, um, as an organization, as well as our ability as a community to get to this. And I think, you know, when you set really big, ambitious goals, it, it forces you to say, okay, if, if we continue on the path we're on, are we going to get there or not? If not, like we better come up with new strategies. And I think that's one of the things, you know, where two years ago we said, you know what, we got to take a shot at this. If, if we're going to get to 2030, it's going to mean we're going to need some help in a more leveraged fashion, which would come from you know, state legislature or advocating at the state level versus at the individual school level. And so I think it forces you to, to really constantly be thinking about, um, we set this big ambitious goal. How can we, how can we achieve it? And it may require an entirely new, in our case, an entirely setting up a new affiliated organization, which really wasn't on the roadmap earlier. Exactly. And I think that's why our organization and my meet why I mean Matthew are so attracted to the Mission 2030 goal, because like you said yourself, there's a huge difference between just talking about, okay, yes, we know, teaching students about investing, budgeting, saving, personal finance topics are important, but actually putting a stake in the ground, using your words to set up a concrete goal by mission, by the year 2030, we want to have students walking across the graduation stage, guaranteed having taken a personal finance course. So today, if there's a student hearing this podcast, and they want to learn about personal finance, and their school currently doesn't teach it, do you have any tips, resources to direct them to if they want to start learning more about personal finance today after hearing this episode? Yeah, sure. So one other thing, I just want to close out the other point, which is I think one of the reasons we also did Mission 2030, you know, put that stake in the ground, I think educators really encouraged us to, to think boldly, um, because we had seen examples of them fighting for this for 10, 15 years. Um, and we saw that. And I think that that also emboldened us. So where students can go, number one, you have a voice and recognize that you have a voice in your education. And so uh, we have tools on our website um, to help students if they want to advocate at the local school level. So everything from board presentations to how to overcome hurdles, you know, we've kind of heard them all in terms of um, what prevents this from happening. Um, and, and I think one starting point is to do a survey. Um, so we provide kind of a very basic survey to ask other students because when you survey students in the building and, and maybe you want to wait till students are senior, like you want to kind of focus key in on seniors, because I think when you have post high school staring you in the face, whether you're going to go to college, whether you're going to go to trade school, whether you're going to get a job right after high school, like this suddenly becomes a lot more relevant to you. And I think if it's not being offered in your school today and you asked seniors as they were going out the door in the spring of their senior year, hey, what do you wish you learned while you're in high school? Uh, I can guess, I can bet you that personal finance, if it ain't number one, it's going to be number two. Um, and being able to show, hey, this is a gap. If our school is serious about providing 21st century skills, financial skills have to be on that list. And so... Uh, recognizing you have a voice, 
do a survey to, to show that there is interest at the, the school level and start a dialogue with um, probably an interested teacher first, because there may be a teacher who's teaching two weeks in an econ course who wishes they could do more. And so then you you start with a teacher and then you kind of work through the administration to to make this happen. And, you know, start small, start with an elective course. Um, and then I think we've seen so many examples. Once the ball gets rolling with that course, word spreads in the halls. And suddenly that goes from one section to two, three, four sections uh, soon thereafter. Yeah, I think that's really inspiring. And I'm excited to see where this goes. Uh, I think there's a lot of hope and there's been a lot of progress. We're almost at half of the state's. And you've been an inspiring figure. Uh, you've been on our radar for quite a bit um, since we recorded a podcast with Shauna Barfus um, in, I think, now last May, um, so over a year ago. And she mentioned your name. Uh, she called you a celebrity at the time. Um, <laughs> and you're the, you're the king of personal finance. We're, we're, no, no, we're no. So it takes a village. Shauna's awesome. Actually, I just saw her um, in Utah. She She's a legend. She had a great conference uh, for, you know, she heads up the yeah. Utah Jumpstart. That was a great, uh, great conference. Thanks, thank you guys for doing the work that you do. Because, uh, again, I'll say it again. You all play a big role in whether it's legislators or administrators listening to, to hear, okay, this is what we need, or this is what I've learned. And I really, the fact that you guys learn this stuff and now want to ensure that more students get it. Uh, that's, that's awesome. Thank you. We're, we're inspired by you and we hope to continue working with you. That's all we have time for today. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share? Any uh, links, resources, uh, personal promos, whatever you'd like. <laughs> Just go to ngpf.org and check out our arcade, play our games, and uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of content there. Obviously, we're kind of teacher facing, but students are welcome to uh, our website's pretty easily accessible for those who want to learn on their own. Great, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Money Moots with Gen Z for Financial Literacy. We hope you learned something today. If you'd like to work with us, visit our website, genzforfinlit.org slash intern. Again, that's genzforfinlit.org slash intern. You can also follow us on Instagram at genzforfinlit. We also have a monthly newsletter where we go into depth on everything related to finance and business. You can sign up for it on our website as well. Until next time, it's been Matt and Steven.